Got it. Yeah, but we'll be, we'll get going in a minute, but hello. Hello, honey. Hello, Rabbi Fraud. Not yet, not yet. All right, I'm trying to be. So we are now live uh, on Facebook. So welcome everyone. This is the end of Shemitah <laughs> uh, with Mr. Michael Fraud. So um, as we come to the end of the Shemitah year, but not the end of Shemitah, we would like our community to take time to contemplate what was learned, what was released, what will be left behind, and what we might carry forward into the next seven-year cycle. Uh, we're here with Mr. Michael Fraud, a very good friend of ours, for a discussion of what Shemitah might mean for us in the years we don't observe it. So Michael Fraud is a rabbinical student at Hebrew College, a pluralistic institution in Newton, Massachusetts. After earning his bachelor's in history from Yale University, he spent five years in the South working as the Jewish Outdoor Food and Environmental Education Director at the Louisville, Kentucky JCC, and on a number of small farms. Michael has learned Torah at Hadar, Drisha, Pardes, the Conservative Yeshiva, and Yeshrut, and is also an alumnus of Hazon's Josie Fellowship. He has previously worked for Drisha as the Assistant Program Director, and we're always happy to have him back. A little note for those joining us here on Zoom, I will send you an invitation to become a panelist that will not obligate or force you to do anything, but it will let you into the room, and we would really appreciate if you would turn on your camera, um, give us a little bit more of a communal classroom feel. You'll also be able to unmute yourself rather than uh, trying to flag me down to get help doing that. You're of course also welcome to share questions, comments in the chat, if that's your preference, um, or if you'd like to take little notes while we're waiting for um, times for questions, answers, discussion. Uh, if you're joining us on Facebook, you're welcome to put questions and comments in the comment section directly below this video, and I will migrate them over here so you can still participate in the conversation, even if it's um, a little, a little uh, more circuitous to <laughs> get there. Um, without further ado, Mr. Fraud, please. Great, thank you so much, Noah, um, for that introduction. It is, uh, it's, it's great to be here teaching with Drisha. Um, as Noah mentioned, I have learned at Drisha, I have worked at Drisha, and it's it's an organization that is very near and dear to my heart, and and so I'm very happy to be uh, here with everyone this evening. Um, just to give a bit of an an, an opening framing, uh, you know, as as Noah mentioned, uh, kind of the idea of this this evening's session is to think about what happens at, at the end as we move out of Shemitah, uh, as we move out of this sabbatical year that we have been in since last Rosh Hashanah and that theoretically ended with Rosh Hashanah 5783, but uh, continues to have some reverberations both in terms of some things that are still going on related to Shemitah and will continue to go on in the coming weeks and the coming months and in very practical sense, but also uh, on a more personal and a more thematic level, um, you know, what, what, what can we take away from this? And so my, my angles on this, uh, you know, I think Shemitah has been something that, that has been very 
important to me over the years. As, as Noah said, I worked for a number of years in farming and in outdoor education. And I think uh, when, when I was getting ready for the Shemitah year, most of what I was thinking about and encountering came from the many people in the U.S. Jewish outdoor farming world who have been um, thinking about what this practice means for people who are living in the U.S. Who, or elsewhere outside of the land of Israel where there isn't necessarily a, a set of halachic requirements for what you have to do. Um, but who are thinking about it as people who are tied to the land, who are trying to live their values, their Jewish values very intentionally. Um, and then for Shemitah itself, I found myself studying for the year in Jerusalem, um, where the halachic ramifications of Shemitah uh, are completely different in many ways from, from what they look like in in Chutzlaretz and in places like Massachusetts, where I currently am, just in terms of what what the conversation looks like and and what the what the priorities are for that. Um, so I, I got to see a lot of planning in one context for Shemitah, and then the actual execution of it and the lived experience in a very different context. And and so it's been a lot of fun this past year, kind of synthesizing um, those different practices. Um, and so that's a little bit about just kind of where I come from in terms of my thinking around um, around some of these issues. And, and so what I wanna start by doing is going through a few sources related to things that happen at the end of Shemitah that kind of bring the year to a close. Um, a couple things that are alluded to in the Torah and in early rabbinic sources that then get traced throughout the years uh, as, as, you know, again, kind of examples of things that happen on a more practical level at this time of the Shemitah cycle. And from there, the hope is that we uh, will have some, some time and space at the end to reflect together for all of us as, as we move out of Shemitah, what we have learned, if there are personal practices that we've taken on or things that we've seen that are interesting. And, and there's some notes on the source sheet as well about some things that I have, have noticed and appreciated in terms of, uh, you know, what, what people have done to mark some of the ideas that coincide with the end of Shemitah. Um, so if at any point, yeah, so perfect. So uh, we just got a source sheet in the chat. So there's a PDF copy there. And I think we will also be screen sharing very shortly for folks who want to follow along that way. Um, at any point, if you have questions or comments, um, please feel free to chime in. Um, the chat works, uh, just unmuting works. Um, so please, you know, feel, feel, free to, feel free to chime in. But I think um, for now, no, if we can do a, a, a screen share, I think let's, let's dive into the sources and see what we can see what we can find. Um, so just to kind of give a quick refresher on the three main sources and we're only gonna we're only gonna be here for a minute, but we kind of have three main sources in the Torah that talk about the ideas that 
constitute Shemitah. Uh, the first we see here in Shemot, in Exodus, uh, we kind of have this idea that six years you farm your land, you sow, you gather in the seventh year, you let it rest, Vashmi'it, Tishmitena, Mdashta, right? That kind of, it, it's, it's open to everyone. Um, that, that, that you don't cultivate the land the same way that you would in other years. The second source that we get is in Vayikra, where it's a very similar, uh, very, very similar idea uh, that the land has, right? Shabbat Lashem, right? That the land has a Sabbath for the Lord. For six years, uh, you sow your field, you work your vineyard, you treat the land as you normally would. In the seventh year, right like a year of complete rest shabbat shabbaton um also seasonally appropriate right a phrase that is used liturgically and uh and also just in rabbinic language for yom kippur um so really in terms of shabbos is that you really pay a little extra attention to this is very up there in terms of things that the torah emphasizes uh, the the importance of it. Um, so again, there that source in Vayikra and Leviticus is going to have a focus on what happens to the land, and then the third source that you get in Devarim in Deuteronomy, uh, you know, right? Every seventh year you will practice Shemitah, remission of debts, um, right? Kind of from the the root of two to let go, to release, um, that then kind of becomes the most commonly named, com commonly known name for the year. And in Devarim, the focus here is much more on finances than it is on agriculture. Uh, you know, creditors remit the due that they claim from their fellows. Uh, you know, there shall be no needy among you. Hashem will bless you in the land that Hashem is giving you as a hereditary portion. Uh, and so there's this idea, right, of releasing debts, releasing loans, kind of a, a wiping clean of the financial slate. And um, we're going to get into this in some of our sources in just a minute as well. But in addition to that general prescription for how it's going to work, um, in verse 7, starting in verse 7, uh, in Dvarim here, we have this injunction, do not harden your heart and shut your hand against your needy kin. Rather, you must open your hand and lend whatever is sufficient to meet the need. Beware lest you harbor the base thought the seventh year, the year of remission is approaching so that you are mean and give nothing to your needy kin who will cry out to Hashem against you and you will incur guilt, right? So there's this kind of moral exhortation, you know, this thing that happens in the Torah all the time where we have been talking about financial law and debt. And uh, in addition to the kind of financial pieces of what's going on, we then veer into this moral exhortation saying, you know, don't don't harbor these, these thoughts. I love that it calls it a mean thought just because it works as a more formal translation, but also it's it's so colloquial. Like, don't be mean, um, you know, like give people what they need. Uh, but but it kind of goes from the financial into that, that injunction and then specifically into 
you know, lest your neighbor cry out to Hashem and kind of gives that theological backing to uh, a financial thing. I think that that's something that we see in the Torah in many places in terms of uh, the distinction or, or lack thereof between what we might think of as um, financial, civil, religious, ritual, moral, ethical, all of these kinds of laws that get jumbled together, uh, which, which makes us a very rich source for thinking about many things. Um, so one thing that I want to note very quickly, kind of going over these sources, is the timing of them, right? We have this idea that something lasts a year. And one of the questions that we will very soon get into is what constitutes the year? Um, when does it start? When does it end? And so two things, I actually, uh, this did not go on the source sheet, but the first Mishnah of uh, Mishnah Rosh Hashanah, right? The Mishnah kind of the earliest code of Jewish law and, and codification of uh, the oral law. Uh, the very first Mishnah kind of lays out different standards for the calendar year, including that the first of Tishrei, also known to us as Rosh Hashanah, is the new year for Shemitah and for other things, right? That there are different points that we might count the beginning of the year from. Um, so for example, in many places in the Torah, like in festival calendars, if you've been to Shul in the past couple of days and you've seen them say, you know, in the, on the 15th day of the seventh month, we have this thing called Sukkot, um, you know, so according to the Torah where uh, the year starts in Nisan, we are currently in the seventh month. Um, for those of you who were in Shulan Rosh Hashanah thinking, wait, isn't this the beginning of the year, right? So there's different points at which the year begins. So one of the first things we get, um, and again, apologies that this did not end up on the source sheet, um, but it's the first Mishnah of Masachet Rosh Hashanah, if anyone wants to look into it more. Um, so it starts on Rosh Hashanah. And then one other important detail that we get here is, uh, is in our next source, the uh, commentator Chizkuni, who is uh, writing in the 13th century, just kind of makes a, a quick clarification that um, we, we have in the source in Devarim, right? It starts off, The translation we get here through, through JPS, through the Jewish Publication Society, is every seventh year. Chizkuni really points out, right? means at the end of, right? At the end of every seventh year. Um, and so he says the rules governing Shemitah do not commence until the end of uh, the seventh year. And, and so one of the things that we start to get into is this idea of when does the release of debts happen? When do some of these other things that you might think of as being a little more time specific than um, let your land lie fallow, which is really a, a year long process. Um, the Chizkuni and other, other sources will really kind of put the same train of thought is that any place where it says Miketz, at, that, that gets translated as at the end of, meaning everything that Deuteronomy talked about related to the remission of debt, that kicks in at the end of the year. And so if Shemitah started last Rosh Hashanah uh, and lasted through 5782, now that we've hit 5783, um, the end of Shemitah year is where some of these things have their, their final stopping point where they really come into effect. 
Um, so just in terms of thinking about the two main practices that I want to go into that relate to what happens at the end of Shemitah, um, we're going to see that, that phrase showing up in the Torah of Miketz Shavashanim, Miketz Shnata Shemitah at the end of, and that's part of how we get this idea that these certain things are happening now as opposed to say a year ago. So with that, I want to kind of jump into the next section. <clears throat> um, the, the, the first of the two things that is really strongly associated with the end of Shemitah year is the releasing of debts and the prusbol that we saw, uh, the releasing of debts that we saw just a few moments ago in Devarim. Um, so, so prusbol is, is this, you know, kind of famous, infamous uh, institution that comes into play very early. And so we have it talked about in Mishnah Shabi'it, uh, the Mishnah kind of dealing with the laws of the seventh year, the Shemitah year, uh, where it says a loan secured by a prosbol is not canceled. Um, this was one of the things enacted by Hillel the Elder when he observed people refraining from lending to one another and thus transgressing what is written in the Torah, beware lest you harbor the base thought um, kind of, i.e. that the seventh year is reproaching and that you're therefore not going to give a debt. At that point, Hillel enacted the prosbol. Um, and then it kind of gives us the, the, the formula where uh, the, um, gosh, not the, not the debtor, the other one, the one who is owed money. I'm blanking on the word. Um, but the person who owes money goes to the court and basically kind of deposits the responsibility for the outstanding loan with them or for the outstanding debt. Uh, such that it is not something that they are obligated to release in the seventh year. Um, and so on the one hand, what we get is, uh, and, 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 and so on the one hand, what we get is this idea of a bit of a workaround where on the face of it, the prose bowl is nullifying the need to fulfill this interpersonal commandment, right? The way that Devarim sets it up is it's talking about really loans between people. Um, by the time we get to the Mishnah, where we have institutions holding loans or institutions holding legal power in this different way, the institution has the ability to hold on to a longer term debt or to collect a longer term debt. Um, in a way that kind of circumvents the individual's need. And, um, you know, I, on, on the one hand, I think we can see this as circumventing the mitzvah. And, and there are some people who feel uncomfortable with this uh, for very similar reasons that people feel uncomfortable with other legal loopholes that exist in, in, in Jewish tradition, like selling chametz or, um, you know, during Shemitah for people who are opposed to the idea of hetar mechirah, the idea that we uh, have access to eating the produce that's grown in Eretz Yisrael by virtue of kind of uh, 
de jure selling the land to someone else, even though everyone continues to exist on it and live on it the exact same way that they already were. Um, so there are people who, who are opposed to it because they think that it's, it's, it's kind of a legal fiction. On the other hand, it kind of, it, it greases the wheels. It keeps the system moving. Um, and, and part of what's always been interesting to me about this source is Hillel's focus of concern, uh, right? So it kind of says, you know, that Hillel enacts this when he sees that people are transgressing what is written in the Torah, right? Beware lest you harbor the base thought, lest you kind of come theoretical, uh, theoretical lender um, to say, you know what, it's, it's year five of seven and Michael needs money again. I know that Michael is kind of lazy and doesn't have such financial success. If I loan him money now, the likelihood that he's going to have paid it back within two years is very low. I will lose my money. This is a bad investment. I'm not going to do it. Um, and, you know, despite all of my faults and need for better financial responsibility, the end result of this is, you know, I'm, I'm out of luck. I no longer have recourse to any sort of, um, any sort of financial help. Um, but Hillel is not phrasing this in terms of he instituted the pros bowl because uh, he saw that people were in dire financial straits. Uh, the way that this is formulated is he saw that people were violating the command against this hardening of the heart. Um, that for the people who had the resources to help and chose not to because of the real financial liability that it put on them, uh, that this is geared toward the people who have those resources. Um, I just think it's an interesting thing to note kind of as, as we have these discussions, the, the focus there being not only on the person who's in need, but also, again, the moral concern for the the, the moral and spiritual well-being of the person who has the resources to make this loan and who is choosing not to, um, right? That they're not necessarily being set up as the bad guy here. They have a very compelling reason not to want to give this loan. Um, but that the Mishnah kind of talks about this as a way that Hillel is trying to help both parties in a certain way. Um, you know, it's, it's not necessarily picking one side over the other, but it recognizes that in order to make the system work as economics change and as the reality of how humans relate to each other uh, continues to be just so incredibly richly complicated, uh, that, that we need to make some of these changes. Um, and, and I think, you know, Prozbol has become one of the most famous examples in Jewish tradition of this sort of, uh, you know, innovation that both skirts and affirms the system at the same time. Um, and, and so, you know, again, kind of we, we see um, in, in some of our sources right below this, we see as, as we get into things like the Mishnah Torah and the Shulchan Arach, the codification of the idea that 
you know, as the text said, right at the end, that these prose bulls can be signed and the debts can be um, given and collected really up until the end of the seventh year. And so, you know, on, on Erev Rosh Hashanah, a few weeks ago, I had a flurry of WhatsApps from different people kind of organizing along with their, uh, you know, Beit Din that they were putting together for Hatarat Nitarim for the for the annulment of vows. That is kind of a, a standard thing that people do before Rosh Hashanah. People were also saying like, oh, you know, do any of us need to make a prisbal? Like, is that also something that we want to make a, a Beit Din for so that I can, you know, continue to collect the money that uh, you know, my roommate owes me for rent, but that uh, she hasn't then mowed me yet, or like whatever it is. Um, but you know, that that kind of comes into play at the end of the Shemitah year, that it's, um, it's, it's really just within the past few weeks, uh, that once Rosh Hashanah 5783 showed up, then, you know, as, as we see, like at the, at the bottom of the, the Mishnah Torah here, right? When the sun sets on the night of Rosh Hashanah of the eighth year, which is this year, that's when the debt is nullified. Um, so we kind of have these things um, showing up just now. Um, and the next thing, the, the, the next source that we see, which I think is just interesting in terms of how we think about different pieces of Shemitah applying here, um, so again, we're going into the Shulchan Arach um, in Choshen Mishpat, kind of talking about the right the the release of debts only applies by Torah law in a time where the Jubilee year also applies. So basically, you know, we have not had the Jubilee year, we have not had Yovel uh, since the destruction of uh, like, like since the temple was destroyed. Um, so this has been defunct kind of according to the theory of Torah law for thousands of years. Um, but uh, according to the sages, it applies in the current day in all places, right? So uh, for folks who have been studying the laws of Shemitah, you may know that a lot of the agricultural law really only applies in Eretz Yisrael. Um, and so someone who is living in, outside of Beit Shemesh or in the Galil, there is a mitzvah for them to leave their fields fallow and to um, figure out how to address all of the different pieces associated with that. Uh, for someone who is living in Utah or Massachusetts or Argentina or India, like it doesn't, it, it's not a Torah law for them to leave their fields fallow. But we do have this notion that Divrei Sofrim, uh, according to the system that the rabbis have set up that kind of builds onto Torah law, that these things still do apply uh, to us. And I think there's lots of interesting implications. Uh, you know, what does that actually mean in practicality? Um, you know, in addition to the questions I mentioned earlier of the debates that people have about is this skirting a mitzvah in a way that we don't like? Is it an opportunity to keep the system moving and to prevent major disruptions? Um, you know, there's also questions about what this looks like when we live in a world of huge financial institutions that did not exist uh, in the time in which the Torah was written down. Um, another source that I did not end up putting on here, but uh, you know, the, the current day Israeli POSAIC legal uh, 
legal decisor, Rev. Eliezer Malamed, who's the author of a, a very well-known series called the Penine Halakha, uh, you know, has outlined and given talks on a whole series of things about, you know, if I have a, a bank account, if I have a, you know, does that, how does that function? How does a home loan function in terms of being a loan or a debt? Is that something that's subject to this? If I have written checks that have not been cashed yet, do those continue to be uh, cashable if Shemitah ends between the time that I write them and between the time that someone deposits them? And generally speaking, the, 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 the idea that he lands on and that most people land on is again, that like financial institutions as a whole function in a different way from the kind of interpersonal rules that we're talking about here. Um, but that is a, a rabbit hole that we're not necessarily gonna go down right now. Um, let me just pause for a minute. That's kind of the first of two things that I wanted to talk about in terms of the things that happen toward the end of Shemitah, uh, they kind of come from the Torah that, that have their continuation or modern reinvention that are showing up in, in our current day, day and age. So before we go on to the second of those two, uh, I just wanna take a minute to see if there are any questions or thoughts uh, related to pros bowl, collecting of debts, things of that nature. Great. Okay. In that I case, actually have a little bit of a thought. Oh, great. That I did not think previously uh, to this moment. Um, sometimes some things that uh, are just you know taken as like Jewish knowledge. I kind of like. I'll speak for myself, but I'm kind of like, okay, like, are you sure? Like, I don't know about this whole like end of Shemitah is when it goes into effect thing because the whole sort of like artistically, I like the, you know, the, the, the stroke of the year change, all your debts turn into pumpkins. Like, that's great. But like, um, I think that like going through the original sources, like in the Torah again and thinking about it in sequence as you showed it, um, and thinking about what Shemitah might have actually been like prior to the Colombian exchange and an you know, international globalized world, um, it almost seems like an attempt at forced uh, solidarity sorts with the people who have these debts. If you have to go through a year of not necessarily food instability, but relative instability, I, I think that's kind of brilliant actually, but and then you have to make a decision about whether or not you're going to uh, relieve this debt. I think that's significant. Yeah, 100%. Um, I think that one of the things that is much harder in, in today's day and age is, is to capture that sense of the interconnectedness and the vulnerability that I think we're so much the so, so, so much at the heart of some of this. Um, and, you know, one of, one of my favorite soapboxes to get up on is uh, about how so many of the things that we 
read about or that we continue to do as Jews can be better understood by trying to put yourself in the shoes of someone who was a subsistence farmer in the year 1000 BCE um, or 500 BCE. And the ways in which uh, some of these ideas about letting a field lie fallow and releasing debts of a certain nature in this interpersonal system where they had some coinage, but a lot of it was based on barter. A lot of it was just based on growing what you needed and trading with it um, and very local economies. Uh, you know, those things gave, I think, a different valence or a different uh, ability to understand some of what's going on here. And to get access to that same idea for me, at least, you know, as, as someone who like lives in an apartment and drives places and, you know, like has a bank account, uh, it takes a certain level of imagination and reconfiguration. But I, but I think you're totally right in terms of, yes, there is a piece of this, and especially with Yovel, which we're not going to really get into here, but this idea that not only do you release debts, but that every 50 years, ancestral land holdings return to the people who owned them 50 years ago, which over the course of time basically means that land stays in the hands of the people and the tribes who were allotted those portions of land when B'nai Israel entered the land, right? I mean, there's a, there's a huge notion, uh, there's a totally different notion of like what the economic priority uh, is and, and what the system is, right? You know, and kind of some of the stuff that you get into that is, um, you know, um, right? You know, that the point of some of this is to remember that like the land, the money, these do not actually belong to us. And there's this kind of interdependent relationship that, that comes out of these periodic resettings. Um, but yes, I, th I think a hundred percent that that notion of interdependence is very baked into, into this. Um, so with that, let's look at the second practice that happens specifically at the end of Shemitah and that, again, continues to have, um, or not continues because I don't think it's happened consistently, but that is now experiencing a revival um, in modern Jewish communities, especially in the state of Israel. Um, and that second practice is something called hakel. Uh, hakel, the Hebrew word, is related to kahal or kehila, congregation. It basically is a is a um, imperative command to gather. And uh, if we look at the source for it in Devarim, again, this shows uh, this showed up just a couple of weeks ago in the parsha too in um, uh, Vayelach. Uh, you know, Vaitzav Moshe Otam Lemor Miketz Sheva Shanim B'Moed right? So Moses instructed them every seventh year, says our translation here, but again, goes back to that idea of at the end of, that we saw earlier, the year set for remission, i.e. Shemitah at the Feast of Booths, 
i.e. our somewhat clunky uh, English translation for Sukkot, right? All of Israel comes to gather before God. You shall read this teaching aloud in the presence of all Israel. Gather the people, men, women, children, strangers, so that they may hear and so learn to revere Hashem, your God, and to observe faithfully every word of this teaching, right? So this is something, right, this idea basically that uh, every seven years at the end of Shemitah, as it's understood, during Sukkot, um, i.e., like, today, um, everyone gathers in Jerusalem at the time where they're already there for the pilgrimage festival, um, and I want to note as part of this, right, kind of a, a, a particular inclusion here of men, women, children, uh, strangers, sojourners, people who sometimes are listed by name, sometimes are not listed by name. When they're not listed by name, much ink has been spilled about whether or not they are included by implication. Um, or whether they are written out. But here, I think, you know, multiple people note. Um, and I think this is also characteristic of, of other things that we see in Sefer Dvarim, that there is this inclusion, this specific naming of lots of different groups of people, right? You know, if you look at the beginning of, of Nitzavim, where it kind of lists all of these different groups of people, um, you know, the elderly, the young, water drives, like all, all of these different people get listed. So I think in, in some ways, this is also part of the, the literary tradition that we're coming from in this moment. Um, but there's this idea that every seven years, everyone gets together and they read Torah. Um, they, they read Torah together in Jerusalem. And Later sources will get into what, right? And, and, and also just to know, kind of, you know, if we go back into verse 11, it says, Tikra et ha Torah hazot, right? That you will read this Torah, this teaching. Um, and we're about to get into, you know, okay, so what exactly does that mean? Are they reading the entire Torah, right? Torah in this context is often understood just to refer to Sefer Dvarim. Um, as well, but um, you know, if we if we go into Minnesota, our Nakhorus will kind of see the earliest iterations of what did this look like, right? You know, at the conclusion of the first day of Sukkot in the eighth year, at the end of the seventh year, right? So they're making that very clear that um, we're doing this not during the Shemitah year, but kind of right at the end. They make a wooden platform in the temple court. Um, you know, in, in the kind of outermost court, the women's court where, where everyone is able to enter. Um, and the king comes and sits upon it, uh, takes and, and, and uh, Hazana Knesset, the sexton takes a Torah scroll, passes it through this line of people with the high priest passing it to the king. And the king stands it and receives it, but reads it while sitting because it's a very long portion <laughs> that the king is going to have to read. Um, and, and if we kind of skip down toward the end here, right, he reads from the beginning of these are the words, i.e., you know, Elad Varim, the very beginning of Sefer, uh, Sefer Dvarim through the Shema, right, kind of six chapters. And then we have a few other passages. The second paragraph of the Shema, Aser to Aser, 
Kitzchalalasa, right? All of these things about tithing and your relationship specifically to being in the land, parashat ha-melech, right? Something, um, you know, kind of the portion of the king, here's the English translation, but uh, a thing that limits the power of the Israelite king, uh, lists all of the things that they're not allowed to do. Um, again, you know, this is being read publicly by the king with the king saying, the king is not allowed to do A, B, C, D, and E, um, right? And then kind of concluding with blessing, blessings and curses, um, kind of this massive long section toward the end of Dvarim. Um, and, and so this gives us a bit of a picture of, again, like some, some highlights of different ideas where this is going to include the Ten Commandments and the Shema, ideas about what you do when you're living on the land, the rewards for keeping the Torah, the punishments for not keeping the Torah. It, it's very much a, a set of like greatest hits and highlights, kind of the information that they would have wanted you to know about how to live your life um, and that they really bring everyone publicly together uh, to do it. Um, and, and so those sources are, you know, kind of giving us a picture of what this would have looked like for this assembly. Um, you know, one, one thing I found while I was researching this is if you scroll down a few sources to Vayikra Rabbah, right, kind of an early Midrashic compilation on Sefer Vayikra, on the book of Leviticus, um, we have an alternative teaching from, from Rabbi Chia, who, who says, like, we have a totally different portion that also gets read that that uh you know doesn't necessarily make the list in some of our other sources um but i think it it by contrast illuminates some of what the point is supposed to be because again if as i said some of the point in devarim is like what what are the, what are the big highlights that you really need to know um rebbe Chia's idea here uh right Right, so Leviticus 19 is what he's talking about, the beginning of Parshat Kedoshim, um, also kind of for, for folks who are into biblical scholarship, this is, I believe, the beginning of the, the holiness code in Leviticus, um, and we get all of these moral injunctions, um, and, and the idea here is that this is, according to Rabbi Fia, a place where we find all the most important principles of the Torah, including this is the, the chapter where we have the Haftalarecha love your neighbor as yourself. Rabbi Levi says, you know, he kind of draws this parallel where within this chapter of Leviticus, you can find verses that basically parallel all of the Ten Commandments. Um, and he goes on to list, you know, here in, in this parsha, it says, you know, I am Hashem your God. And you know, that parallels the first commandment, and then they do two and three and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so again, it gets to this idea that hakel is supposed to be an opportunity for everyone to come together and to study as a collective, like the core tenets of ethics and identity and living well on the land. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's fun that there's, you know, this, this, alternative idea for what that could be, even if it doesn't necessarily seem to be what makes it in. Um, but that's kind of the idea of Hakel. Um, and we'll talk about this more in a minute, but, uh, you know, I think, I think it is, 
you know, this is talking about Sukkot in the eighth year, which we are currently in day three of, or I guess now sun has set. We are in day four of. Um, and this is happening currently. Like today, I think at like 6 p.m. Israel time, there was a hotel ceremony at the Kotel sponsored by the Chief Rabbinate and the Western Wall Foundation, where they like dedicated new Torah scrolls and read publicly from them. Um, and and yeah, you know, we'll we'll that 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 practice, as was the case with so many things with Shemitah, was dormant for many years until you started to have more people settling in Ottoman and then British Palestine and now the state of Israel um, who really started to bring this back with an increased Jewish presence in the land uh, such that we have now these things happening every seven years that, that just didn't happen for hundreds of years. Um, and I, I will just quickly note that if you go online and you find a, there's videos from the ceremony that happened earlier today. Um, and it is mostly like Haredi Jews with suits and black hats. Um, it mostly looked litvish, but I didn't get a close look. Um, but they're doing Hakel at the Kotel and at the end of the public reading, they invite someone up to, you know, do Hagba, to raise the Torah in front of all the people who are there. And, you know, this ceremony where it's, you know, kind of the king getting up and reading and holding the Torah and stuff like that. And who is it who they have do Hagba at the Kotel ceremony? It's Bibi, um, which is so funny to me on so many levels. Um, like, first of all, that he is no longer the prime minister, but is still like this kingmaker in Israeli politics. And so they give him like this ceremonial role. He's not quite the role of the king, but like, they definitely didn't invite Yair Lapid. Um, it, it's just like, it's so funny to me um, for so many reasons that he is like standing there doing Hagba. Um, as part of this thing. And obviously like the we'll have deal between the ancient king of Israel and Bibi Netanyahu, the once and maybe future prime minister. Stay tuned. I have no expertise in Israeli politics, um, but just like a fascinating video on a sociological level. And I highly encourage people to go look it up just because it's crazy that these things are like happening again. Um, okay, so that is, that's item two, right? Kind of, we have the release of debts and prose ball um, as, as our things that happen toward the end of Shemitah that we are now figuring out these ways to kind of reintegrate into society as the practices of Shemitah come back into the public consciousness over the past 100, maybe 120 years tops of, uh, of having a Jewish presence in the land of Israel, the state of Israel that kind of makes these things possible in a different way. Um, and in a minute, I do wanna mention some of the things that are also happening outside of the land of Israel, because I think that there's 
phenomenal work being done on that front as well. But I just kind of want to note that those two things in particular kind of have their halachic ramifications and their history of now being reclaimed and reinvented. Um, so let me just pause again um, for any questions, comments related to, to that. Um, and if not, then we can take a few minutes to talk about some of the some of the other things about um, the after effects of Shemitah, the end, and and some of what this looks like going forward, whether that is um, in Israel or Chutzlaretz or wherever we find ourselves. A thought that I was having, I just enjoy with Hakel the parallel. Uh, kind of leveling of the playing field to the release of debts. It's like people are, you know, more or less going to be on the same footing economically. And then also in terms of access to Torah, it's this reset where, uh, yeah, you know, we're all receiving the same information. We all heard it from the same source. Um, and I like that, yeah, both in knowledge and, and finances that, that there is this leveling. Yeah, I really like that. Um, the idea that it's kind of, right, it's 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 a variety of different sorts of equalizing. Um, and one of the things also reminds me of, um, especially because Hakel kind of happens at the temple, is I wish I could remember who says this. I wanna say it's Jacob Milgram, uh, who's a very well-regarded scholar of the Bible and of Leviticus in particular, but I could be misremembering who said this, um, right? That one of the things that is noteworthy in Leviticus in particular, but also elsewhere where we get notions of a sacrificial system or a temple system is that the details are all written down. Right, and so not necessarily everyone gets to be a Kohen, um, not everyone gets to give every sacrifice, but the details of what goes into the construction of the Mishkan and of the temple, the details of what the Kohanim are supposed to be wearing and doing, the details of how the sacrifices function and how all of these different ceremonies ran in the temple, that's all public knowledge. Um, that has been written down and given a sort of transparency that was not necessarily universal, right? You have, uh, I think, in the ancient Near East and, and not exclusively in the ancient Near East, um, all of these temple-focused religions where there was an aspect, a major aspect of secrecy, um, that part of the, uh, part of the point is the mystery of it that you don't know what happens to the priest when they walk into the sanctuary. Um, and and I, I think it's Milgram and I, I could be wrong, um, but but like one of his point is like, we, the details are spelled out and that is not an accident. Um, there is this kind of equalizing saying, you know, again, not everyone necessarily gets to do everything, but the knowledge of what the institutions are supposed to be doing, that's public knowledge, right? And that gets, expanded upon to a huge degree in the Mishnah, where if you look in places like Mishnah Tamid, um, the whole thing is just written out in this really 
beautiful narrative of like what happened from the moment that the first Kohanim wake up, like through the whole course of the day, like what happens? How did this institution run? Um, another story for another time, um, but it's, it's, it's good stuff. Um, okay, so, so we've got eight minutes left. Um, and I wanna just kind of take a, a minute to pivot into a couple thoughts about some of the more thematic aspects. Um, what does it mean to be ending Shemitah? Uh, we've had this experience over the past year of learning together, thinking together, doing together where there has been such an incredible number of resources devoted to this complex, wonderful idea. Um, what happens next? And, and so I wanna to point to a couple sources that, that have guided my thinking a little bit. Um, if we go back to the source sheet, the, the first one is uh, if we go into Leviticus 25, um, that we see this, uh, this idea kind of connected to um, one of our core sources for Shemitah from earlier, right? So in, in verse 20, should you ask, what are we going to eat in the seventh year if we may neither sow nor gather in our crops? I will ordain my blessing for you in the sixth year so that shall yield a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you'll still be eating old grain of that crop. You'll be eating the old until the ninth year, until the, until the crops come in, right? So there's this notion in Vayikra, right? Kind of lest you think that the seventh year, these fields lying fallow is going to mean that there's nothing to eat. There's this notion that um, there will be such a bounty in the lead up to it that it will sustain you for the sixth year, for the seventh year, and into the eighth year after that, such that until the new produce of the eighth year finishes coming in, which might not be for another six months or so, you're still gonna have enough from that sixth year bumper crop. Um, and you know, this to me brings up resonance, uh, or, or, or resonates a bit with thinking about things like Joseph, you know, kind of storing up uh, food from the seven good years in order to prepare for the seven years of famine or for the Israelites gathering the man, the manna in the desert where they collect their double portion on the sixth day so that they have enough for Shabbat, right? There's this sense that you can't actually go out and gather on the seventh day. There will be nothing there. Um, if you are going to have enough to eat, uh, you have to be paying attention the day before. Um, you know, and then there's this great comment from Orachaim, who's a, a 17th century Moroccan commentator just below this, um, where he says, the blessing that the Torah speaks of here is in the nature of what we read in 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings chapter four, right? Which are two stories where the prophets Elijah and Elisha make a little bit of oil of the respective petitioners stretch miraculously, right? So there's these two cases of these, these poor women coming to the prophet and basically saying, can you help me? There's a debtor who's about to take everything I own. Me and my kids are about to die of starvation. And um, Eliyahu and Elisha make the, the oil that they have from this one jug basically last 
you know, line and, and like fill all of these jugs with it to the point where they're able to sustain themselves or sell the oil and get what they need. This is interesting contrast for me in terms of thinking about there's a bracha, but there's also this sense that the bracha came out of a piece of scarcity um, that comes in with this specific comment. So I want to draw um, just like a little bit of a contrast there, thinking about the ways in which there is a bracha, but the bracha isn't always just total abundance, right? Sometimes I think this goes back to what Noah talked about earlier. Like sometimes the bracha comes from being very aware of the notion of scarcity um, and that that is also a piece of it. Um, and let's see, just for the sake of time, we're going to skip down a bit to some of our some of our end sources in our last section, right? But but kind of yeah, I, there there are different ways in which I think we play with the notion of what exactly is the bracha, um, and what exactly are some contemporary things for how people think about these ideas. So if we go down to section five, like I think one or two more pages here. Um, the first thing that I just want to note as something that I was noticing this Shemitah year was a case in Chicago um, for a few months ago where there was a partnership between a pastor and an Orthodox rabbi where uh, they worked with a nonprofit called RIP Medical Debt uh, to basically erase like millions of dollars in medical debt for people in the area. It was very specifically inspired by this partnership where the two of them started talking about the idea of Shemitah and debt release, you know, again, kind of there's, there's again, the question of institutional debt versus individual debt outside the land of Israel, inside the land of Israel. Um, there are kind of specifics where this is not like a normative halachic practice that they're engaging in, but they kind of took this idea of, you know, releasing debt and they raised enough money to erase medical debt for thousands of people. Um, in the area. Um, you know, a few of the sources below that kind of get a little bit into what I talked about earlier, um, you know, kind of what the renewed Hakel ceremonies look like, um, especially in Jerusalem, where there are huge gatherings by the Kotel, reading these portions of Sefer Devarim in front of a huge crowd that kind of happens in this special way every seventh year, including the um, you know, announcement for the dedication of Torah scrolls by the Western Wall Foundation. If you go down one more source, um, exactly what I was talking about today, right? You know, dedication of three Torah scrolls, Zecher Lahakel and Simchat Beit Shoeva, will take place, God willing, on Wednesday, the seventeenth of Tishrei, the second day of Cholamoid, from six to eight fifteen p.m. Right? This was this was a few hours ago in Israel. Um, you know, and kind of the the last project that I want to know in terms of the, the following comes from uh, the Jewish Farmer Network um, based in North Carolina, work all over the US and beyond a phenomenal organization that basically, you know, asked Jewish farmers in the US to think about letting land lie fallow. And um, there are some incredible quotes here in terms of talking about what happened to people when, you know, not necessarily because of strict halachic necessity, um, but as a spiritual practice, they let some of their land lie fallow um, and, and what happened to the land and what happened to them as part of that process. Um, and, and so I note this because I think that uh, there are people who are doing incredible work 
with Shmita. Um, but also as we kind of think about the end of this and what we bring out with us, um, one of the things I think can be really powerful is a notion of making these things a little bit our own, uh, that it has reverberations during the year, but also in the ways that the practice of claiming and reclaiming these practices for different places and different moments in time, that doesn't just honor the practice, it also deepens something in us. And I think that's something I've seen a lot of this year um, that I think about as we move out of it, kind of what do we wanna take with us? Um, and I wanna give a moment to let other people jump in if they want to, if there are things that you have been doing during Shemitah, if there are things that you are taking away from it as we move out of this year and into the beginning of the next cycle. Um, you know, kind of if there are things that are on any of your minds that, that have come up. Those joining us here on Zoom, feel free to unmute or you can flag me down if you need assistance doing that and I will do my best to help. Yes, we have a raised hand. Yes. Yes, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, hi, David Silver here. Um, just to come back to a thought that you had mentioned earlier when you quoted the uh, verses from uh, Vayikra, uh, from Kedoshim, and the, uh, you, uh, you cited somebody or remarked that there's a connection there to the uh, Ten Commandments. Uh, I think one of the interesting features of Shemitah, I think in the Rambam says it, and I think it's attested in many places, that Shemitah is seen as uh, a new reception of the Torah, standing at Sinai. In fact, the word hakel, hey kuf, hey lamet, in the book of Tzvarim, the day of receiving the Torah is mentioned, it's, just, it's called Yom HaKahal. That's the way the Torah in the, I believe it's the fourth chapter, or the fifth chapter, I think the fourth Described standing at Sinai, Yom Hak, the day of the day of the community is, is referencing Sinai. So, this idea of every seven years, um, the community re-experiencing or re-accepting the Torah, I think, is very central to Shemitah, and that's something to think about. It's sort of a new, uh, making new commitments as we start a new cycle. That's my take on Shemitah. I mean, this is not. I mean, others have said this, <laughs> but but the point is, it's I think it's an important. Um, interesting way to look at this hakel after the Shemitah, sort of rededicating ourselves to, to Torah, whatever that means for us, both in terms of study and practice. Uh, just wanted to, so it connects very much to what you had mentioned earlier about being that particular section, which is sort of plays off the Ten Commandments. Yeah, I really love that. Thank you. Um, Okay, in the interest of time, I wanna I wanna wrap this up, and I'll kind of you know end with um, one last thought that kind of frames some of my thinking about what happens moving out of Shemitah, um, and this gets a little bit into the last source that we have with Rev Cook on the page, um, but it's also something that I remember really learning about for the first time with um, with Nigel Savage, who used to be the 
uh, head of Chazon. And it gets into some of the sources that we've seen of all these notions of Shvi'it, Shabbata Aretz, right? It's a cycle of seven. Um, and, you know, I remember Nigel talking about it as basically saying that his, his way of thinking about Shemitah is to think about the years of Shemitah the same way he thinks about the days of the week in relationship to Shabbat. Um, which is to say, you know, for, for me, you know, usually Tuesday, maybe Wednesday, you know, kind of, I start thinking about what am I doing this Shabbat? Like, do I want to host? Uh, did someone invite me over? Uh, like, what what kind of plans do I want to make? Am I volunteering to do any any leaning or leading any davening? Things like that. You know, by by the time I get to Thursday, I usually have a sense of what is going on. If I am hosting a meal or I'm bringing food to someone's home, I I'm doing my shopping and my menu planning. I have, but I have a sense of where I'm going. I am starting to put those things into action. You know, Thursday night into Friday is the rush of I'm, you know, learning my leaning. I'm doing my cooking. I'm like getting ready. And when Shabbos hits, it's Shabbos, right? And 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 the way that he kind of framed that is, you know, if you are a person who wants to have a shemitah practice. Um, in the third or fourth year of the cycle or earlier, if you're very into planning, you know, to start thinking about what happens for the next cycle, to start thinking about if this is a practice that I wanna make personally meaningful, how do I lay the groundwork now over the course of a few years in order to get ready so that I'm not, you know, scrambling to do my grocery shopping at the last minute on Friday, kind of proverbially, but that I, I lay things out such that it's easy for me to, derive joy from the practice that I've chosen and to do so effectively. Um, and the thing that I would add is that, you know, coming out of Shabbos, um, you know, I'm, I'm always sad to see it go, um, but like I eat leftovers into Sunday and Monday, right? You know, I'm, I'm, by the time I start planning for next week, like I'm just finishing up, you know, like the soup and the chicken and whatever else I made. Um, and I'm still, you know, kind of having the conversations that I had with my friends or the Torah that we learned over Shabbos, like it's still percolating in my head in those first few days. Um, and so I think for me, as we move into the first year of the next cycle, right, it's not that we're done with Shemitah, but it's, it's Sunday. Um, and it's the day, it's the year where we get to enjoy those leftovers, um, you know, and, and where we still really get to draw some, some strength and some inspiration from the things that we did during Shnata Shvi'it itself. Um, you know, some people are already looking ahead to the next one. Um, but I think for a lot of us, there's this sense that it's not just that like it ends and then it's over. Um, but there's a piece of us that really starts to, to stick with us, right? You know, there's this old teaching about like, you, you wish people Shavua Tov until Tuesday. And then, you know, Wednesday, you're now closer to next Shabbos. So that's when you start wishing them Shabbat Shalom, right? But you can always wish people either Shavua Tov or Shabbat Shalom. And, and we're very much still in Shavua Tov territory. Like we very much get to continue to 
have the blessings for ourselves, but also to kind of continue to convey them upon other people for the things that we have done this past year together. Um, and so I just want to end by, you know, thinking about that, that metaphor of uh, the Shemitah cycle as very much an extended form of Shabbat uh, that we get to kind of come out of in a sense of sweetness. Um, and just to end with that and by wishing everyone a, a Shana Toba and a continued sweet end to the Chagim as we move through Sukkot, um, you know, and, and, and just to wish everyone well and to say thank you again to, to Drisha for, for having me here and for having such a great lineup throughout Elulzman. Um, you know, there's always more going on. So, you know, I don't know if there's announcements to be made about the next round of classes, but, uh, you know, just uh, Shavuot folks. So thank you, Michael. Thank you, Mr. Fraud. And um, thank you everyone for being here, for being part of our learning community. This was the final class of our Elulzman, which, you know, um, similar to other things we've discussed, there there will be another's Zman. Um, so <laughs> we are entering the dawn of Fall's Zman, uh, and we hope to have information and registration out, God willing, tomorrow, but I'm not going to hold myself to that. Um, <laughs> very soon, um, we do have um, over 150 hours of classes for the eight weeks of Elul's Zman, uh, and we hope that there will be something in there for everyone, uh, something that will help nourish you and help you build up um, your Torah as you are now rededicating yourself uh, in whatever hell you're going through. So thank you everyone, be well, and have a wonderful rest of the holiday season. Thank you.